0: are the Gideons. Gideons are businessmen, Christ followers, and evangelists. As a missionary extension of the church, Gideons meet people where they are by placing Bibles in the traffic lanes of life and by personally sharing the message of true hope with the weary traveler, the sick and discouraged. With all generations in small towns and in major cities, across time zones and countrysides into the ends of the earth. So men, women, boys and girls can learn who they are in Christ and experience life as children of God. Gideons have never done this work alone. It's churches, just like yours, who make their work powerful and effective by providing support through prayer, giving, and a growing membership. Because in the end, we're all carrying out one vision, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel to bring people to Christ.
1: If you got your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter four is where we'll be this morning. As you're turning there, let me say that today you have an opportunity to support the work of the Gideon ministry. Today, they'll be at the exits. They'll have Bibles open. You can drop cash, or if you want to write a check to the Gideons, you can put that in there and and support uh, their ministry. Uh, And here's why I love the Gideon ministry. I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll correct it here in the second I I like them personally and love them personally because they come by my office on a regular basis and ask me two questions. How can I pray for you as the pastor and how can I pray for your church? And uh, they come in here and and do that and and so I'm thankful for our partnership with them. I'm also thankful that we have many members uh, of our congregation who are Gideons and uh, I love the fact that they personally share the gospel with people. And also that they are putting God's word in people's hands, at all, at, as you heard the video say, in all pathways of life, highways of life. And uh, it's a great ministry, and so this morning you're going to have an opportunity to support them. I'm going to pray for us before we get into God's word. I'm going to pray for the Gideon ministry. I'm also going to pray for a team of people who leave our church on Friday to go to West Jordan, Utah And we'll serve uh, there this next week on mission trip. Uh, And we have a a number of people who are going and they're going to go and share the gospel and partner with the Stopman family who are planting Hope Valley Church out there. And so when I pray in just a minute, will you pray for those two things that get in ministry and also those from our church going to Utah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your presence to lift high your name, to receive your word, and Father, I pray that as we receive your word that our hearts are prepared for it, that you would reveal any areas of our life where we need encouragement, correction, challenge, and that, Father, we'll respond obediently to how you lead us. God, I thank you for the Gideon ministry and that they the, these individuals are committed to sharing the gospel personally, that they are are constantly introducing people to the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that they're putting your word in the hands of people and in the, in the pathways of life. I even think about their work this summer at False Creek, where they'll be down at False Creek on multiple occasions, putting God's word into the hands of teenagers. And so, God, I pray that you continue to bless them and that our church would continue to find ways to support them. And, Father, we pray for our own people who are leaving Shawnee to go to Utah to proclaim the gospel. God, we pray that you'd give them travel mercies, that you'd strengthen them and sustain them in the work that they're going to do, that you would prepare the people that they're going to encounter, and also prepare their hearts, that God, gospel conversations can happen, that the light can continue to be shined in the darkness, and that your gospel and kingdom can advance. And we pray also that they'll serve as an encouragement to the Stopman family and to Hope Valley. And Father, we pray uh, that there'd just be a wonderful, a wonderful week of serving you in your name and proclaiming your gospel. Now speak to us as we open up your word and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. In a Peanuts commercial, Lucy demanded that Linus change the television to a different channel. And Linus said to her, or actually she threatened him with her fist. She said, you change that channel. And Linus asked her, What gives you the right to think that you can come in here and tell me to change the TV? And Lucy said, these five fingers. And she said this about her five fingers. She said, individually, they're nothing. But when I fold them up in a fist like this, it becomes a weapon that is terrible to behold. What was Linus' response? Which channel do you want? Turning away, Linus looked at his own fingers and said, why can't you get organized like that? I share that with you to say this. Like Lucy's fingers, individually they make up her fist. We as individuals make up the church. We we are individual people that God's brought together in the person, uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. And when, when we join together, we become a powerful weapon that God uses to advance the gospel in his kingdom. But there's something that needs to be said about when he draws us together. He draws us together in unity. And we have a responsibility to protect the unity of the church. And the way that we do that is, is one, how our unity is fleshed out, that it's fleshed out in our generosity, but also that we're aware of what threatens it, which is our dishonesty. And so this morning, we're going to look at how we protect the unity of the church by being aware of what brings us together, how we live out our unity, and what are the threats to our unity as a church. And so let's read Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 32. Verse 32 through verse 11 of chapter 5 <clears throat> it says now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that be- and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of Je- the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all there was not a needy person among them You have not lied to God not li- you have not lied to man but to God. And when, Anani- when Ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about 3 hours his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said yes for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We're resuming our study in Acts about focusing upon our witness, and very much our witness is is determined by the way that we as the church interact together. And Luke, as we've studied through Acts, this story kind of really actually started with Peter and John healing a lame man in the temple. And then things kind of unfolded to where Peter and John ended up being before the council. They were arrested. They were put in jail. Everybody was praying for their release. They were released. People were being added to the number daily. And then it brings us to this part where Luke and his historical uh, knowledge gives us not just the, the highlights of the early church of like Look at all these thousands of people coming to Jesus. He now gives us an inside look of what's happening inside of the church as it's unfolding. That there's this good thing that's taking place. But then there's also a second picture he shows us of what happens when evil enters the church. And both of these pictures for you and I today illustrate the nature and importance of unity in the body of Christ. And my prayer is that this text will help us personally to understand and pursue unity. Why? Because we each have a personal responsibility to uphold it. And so the first point of today's sermon is this application concerning unity is that unity is made possible through the gospel. You can see in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of, of those who believed. Listen, the full number is not listened. We don't know the exact number that he's talking about, but what we can know from context of Acts is we're talking about thousands of people. Thousands of people have given their life to the Lord Jesus, have committed to faithfully follow him, and because of their faith in Jesus, they're considered a part of this full number. And how do, what are they united around? Their belief. It says, now the full number of those who believed. What is believed? It doesn't tell us. Well, again, context would tell us that they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. That they believe him to be the Messiah, the, the, who died, who was buried, and came back to life, bringing life to them. And listen, they believed in that. Jesus became the centerpiece of their belief. All of these people from all of these backgrounds were unified in their belief in Jesus. And so their faith in Jesus united them to one another. And the text tells us in verse 32 that they were of one heart and one soul, or or one heart and soul, depending on how your text uh, has translated that. But here's the idea of one heart. Heart indicates the wellspring of our being. It is the inner spirit that together these members of this body of Christ were united in their inmost being. And so, believing in their heart who Jesus is, they're united together and, pr- and have unity with each other because of that. Have you ever met someone, and before a word was spoken, you sensed that you were going to get along really well? Now, I tried to think through a lot, of, a lot of people in my life, and, you know, I immediately just came back to my wife and said, hey, the first time that we went out to Chili's here in Shawnee as OBU students, and we sat down... And really, when we sat down at the date, I knew that this was, I knew I was going to marry her. Now, I didn't tell her that because I would have freaked her out. But I just, there was, just, there was a sense there. Now, we all know people in our life that we've met but without saying many words, we knew that we were kind of connected. Like there was just something that we had in common, things that we liked and enjoyed. And that's what's taking place. These people are coming from all of these backgrounds and their belief in Jesus is they look at each other and are like, yep, I can align with them and I know exactly what's happening with them and with me. They also had unity of soul. They, this means they shared the same basic mental focus. In essence, they were of the same mind. Committed, committed to the same gospel. And as a result of being unified in heart and soul, they were unified. There was no division among them. Now it's important to note because sometimes we think we can create unity. We think we can create unity in our families, in our relationships, in our church. And listen, we can't create unity. But God has given us the task of maintaining it. Because see, God is the one who makes unity possible. He's the one that draws people to himself. He's in the business of redeeming people and bringing them into his family and uniting them with other believers, not just here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, but believers all over the world. God is in the business of bringing people into his family and uniting us to each other. And because of that, it's a miracle. Acts 2 is a great miracle of what happened. All of these people from different lands, different languages, different cultures and backgrounds gathered together in Pentecost, hear the gospel proclaimed, believe in Jesus, and Jesus unifies all of these people together. He does the same with you and I. Think about our congregation just in this room alone and the diversity that is here. Listen, God is the one who establishes unity among us. But sometimes we can fall into the mindset of thinking to ourselves that in order for us to be unified, we have to, be, we have to have uniformity. Meaning this, that we have to believe the exact same thing and we have, to, we have to be in the exact same political party and we have to like the same exact things or there's no way that I can be in fellowship with those people. Listen, uniformity, all it does is create clones. But God embraces our diversity and our individuality and he brings us together. Why? Because the church needs diversity. The church needs us as individuals to contribute what we have to the body of Christ because that's how the body of Christ is strengthened. If we all look alike and believe the exact same thing, when I, mean, when I say believe, let me just say this very clearly. I mean, there are things that we believe that we're all unified about, okay? Okay. We're not just talking about any and every belief. We're talking about beliefs centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. But we might have an interpretation about a text of scripture that is secondary to Jesus that we, one might take it this way and one might take it this way. Listen, the beauty of that is, is you sharpen each other as you express your beliefs and what's happening. God wants our diversity. It's why A.W. Tozer explained this, <coughs> excuse me, explained this unity of the church in this way. Has it ever occurred to you That 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. This is the picture of the church. Jesus is the tuning fork. That every individual, when they place their faith and trust in Jesus, is tuned into Jesus. And that is what unifies us. And as a unified body, we're able to move in great power. And we see this in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Why were they able in great power to give this testimony of the resurrected Savior? Because they were in unity. They understood what the mission of the church was. It's to proclaim the gospel so that people can know and become a part of the family of God. And now, listen, when we don't protect our unity and we allow threats to creep in and begin to drift us away from that, we move away from a countercultural, deeply impactful, Christ exalting church that he desires us to be. And we've got to move in great power to fight for the unity of our church so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed. Number two, unity is experienced through our generosity. So some might ask, okay, so how is unity fleshed out? We know that we're all centered upon our belief in Jesus, but like, what does it practically look like? What does unity look like here? It looks through generosity. Generosity, the, the, just the Christian faith alone screams, what is mine is yours. There is both material care and spiritual care in the church. Generosity is what defines our unity. And that's what we see happening here in verses 32 through 37. This congregation was generous. This isn't a just an early church thing. This is what Jesus practiced himself and with the disciples. It's what was practiced in the Old Testament of taking care of others within, the, within God's people. And so it's nothing new, but what they live it out. They believe in Jesus. He unifies them together. And then by practical application, they begin to be generous with their resources and their time and their efforts. And they shared a common way of life. That's what the text tells us here, right? Uh, that they, they had everything in common, meaning this. They were celebrations and burdens that they shared together. That there were time and possessions that they shared together. They were living life together. And this, they were being the picture of everything that is right and good in life. And this is what we should desire for ourselves. So let's look at their generosity. So who was being generous? Verse 32 tells us, and no one said that any of their things that belonged to him was his own. Meaning this, everyone was being jealous. There wasn't a single person who was like, hey, this is mine, don't touch it. Everyone was being generous. Now, when were they being generous? Look at 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners and lands or houses sold to them and brought, the, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So everyone is being generous at all times. As needs were arising, they were meeting them. Now, what were they being generous with? Again, everything. Go back up to verse 32 in that same phrase. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Everything they had, they held loosely. See, the world teaches us to take care of us. And, we, we, and it teaches us to be closed fist with what we, what we earn, what we've been given, and we're to hold on to it. When, when you give your life to Jesus and you receive his grace and mercy, those hands get loose. And you see that everything he's provided you, you hold loosely. And you entrust them to the Lord to use them however he wants to use them. Now, generosity is not easy to un- It's easy to understand. But in all honesty, it's hard in application. I mean, we've all been in situations where we wanted to be generous with our funds. But we were like, I just don't know if I can give that much up this month. Or man, I got this space that I could utilize here, but I really need to hold on to it because I might need it for something right here. Or I have this extra time on my hands, but actually, you know what? I haven't had a day to myself in a couple of days, so I think I'm gonna hold on to it, right? We're guilty of knowing what we need to do with generosity. The church doesn't need any more education on generosity. We just need more application of it. And we're all guilty at times of holding on to those things. But listen, these early believers understood that they had to reject materialism and they had to, they had to entrust their stuff to the Lord to use for his glory and his purpose so that the gospel would continue to be advanced. And we as Christians must never value our money, our time, our possessions above our holiness. We are to lay up treasures in heaven, valuing what is eternal We have to hold our possessions and our money loosely and trust them to the Lord. But not only this, do we have to hold them loosely, we also have to be people-oriented because to be generous, you have to be people-oriented. You have to be relationally involved with people. Now, some might say, well, this is a rather large church. I don't know if I know, I don't don't know very many people in it or I haven't got to meet very many people. How do I know if there's needs in the church? Here's, Here's one thing I could tell you. Get involved in a small group. Talk to the people that you're sitting in front of or behind in your pew and get to know each other. And as needs arise, we should have the freedom to share these needs so that they become aware. The other thing where we, Some people wonder where we get, why we have to give 10% of our money to the Lord and why it goes to the church. Well, here's why it goes to the church, what you see happening in the text. These people were bringing their funds and their proceeds and laying them at the apostles' feet because the apostles were aware of needs that were happening in the church. And so they were entrusting the apostles to say, do whatever you wanna do. So when you give to our church, you're entrusting the church the staff, the ministry programs to say, hey, where are the needs and and where can these funds go so that we can get the most out of them? And that's what's taking place here. But listen, in order to be generous, you've got to be people oriented. You've got to be sensitive. Listen, we've got to be involved in people's lives and know when we have a need. The early church was so connected with each other that no one had a need among them because they were aware when a need arose and they met them. And listen, we've got to care for the material needs, but we've also got to care for the spiritual needs. And I want to say this, listen, just because we provide uh, money to social justice things and the needs that arise, if we do that without Jesus, that's very hollow. The church is to be people who share and are generous with our resources, but we also come with a message that meets the spiritual needs of the people that we're encountering. Jesus. And listen, when God's grace is at work in your life, you'll be generous. To me, it's hard to think about a Christian who's received God's grace and holds their funds tightly where they won't give anything. If you've received God's grace that he freely gave to you and I, then we will be people who have open hands that say, my time, my talents, my treasures will be used for your glory, God. I'm entrusting them to you and you utilize them as you see fit. And every member of the congregation was involved in taking care of one another. No one went to bed hungry. No one slept on the street. No one went without clothes. The text tells us, and there was none, there was not a needy person among them. Listen, everyone was involved those that had little and those that had great. Well, how do you know that those that had great were involved? Well, it says that there were people who were owners of lands and houses and sold them and brought the proceeds to the church and laid them at the apostles' feet. Notice this, though. They didn't lay them at the apostles' feet and said, hey, I'm giving you this money, but I want it to go here. They laid it at the apostles' feet. Whatever they had. If they sold their land or if they took what was in their pockets and laid it at the apostles' feet, that picture was this. They were coming to the apostles and saying, it's it's God's money, it's God's resources, you use them as you see fit and as you hear of needs. And that's exactly what happened. And then Luke gives a specific example in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Notice the descriptors, right? Almost like telling us that he's not like everybody else in the room, okay? Sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is mentioned like 23 times in Acts. He's almost like an example that Luke refers to multiple times in pointing about this is who we should be. And when we read these words of Barnabas, you heard my friend speak on them a few weeks ago about being an encouraging friend. Listen, we don't just want to be encouraging with our words. We want to follow Barnabas' actions and be encouraging with our actions that he did whatever he needed to do. He saw and believed that his money and his time and his possessions was greater used in the hands of God than in his own hands. And he entrusted himself to do this very thing. And listen, we are encouraged today by the extraordinary impact when one individual gives generously within the body of Christ because they're committed to the unity of the body. And you might say, what do you mean by that? Listen, our church continues to stand and continues to serve in our community because of your generosity, because you bring your resources to the church and you give them through tithes and offerings or you give your time and energy and service in places that go, not just go here and meet the needs of our congregation, but go beyond this place to meet the needs. And listen, may we continue to experience the unity of the church by our own personal generosity Listen, this isn't about, well, somebody else can take care of that. This is about you, your generosity. This is how you are committed to the body of Christ, by you being generous with these things, that you're giving generously, sacrificially, and cheerfully to these things. And when we do this, we experience a unity that brings attention to a watching world. Why? Because the watching world sees us acting in a countercultural way. And it gives us the opportunity to proclaim the message. It brings us to the third thing. Unity is threatened through our dishonesty. So Luke gave us a beautiful picture of Barnabas and few words to describe his example. And then he gives us a very sobering picture of two people inside of the church. Now let me say this to you, church. Every church is going to face persecution. Individual members who make up the body of Christ are gonna face persecution. We're gonna face persecution from the outside who wants to silence the church. That's what happened to the early church. They tried to arrest Peter and, and John and put them in jail to stop the advancement of the gospel. And guess what? It didn't work. So what did the enemy do? He went inside the church and he took sinful actions of individuals and tried to stop the mission of the church. Now, why do I share that with us? Because dishonesty threatens the unity of our church, and it needs to be addressed. Ananias and Sapphira were inside the church. Everything about them was indicated that they were inside the church. They, they appeared to be believers. They were witnessing what was happening. They were even participating in it and even saw what Barnabas had done. Why do we know that? Because the first word of chapter five points us back to the previous section. So they were aware of what was happening. They were insiders, But here's what what we learn about Ananias and Sapphira. They were fake. Their holiness was fake. They pretended to give more than they actually did, keeping some of the proceeds of selling their land while acting like they gave it all. Now, let me say this. Um, uh, I I witnessed a dad and his son uh, a while back. Dad said, you can have a half a cookie. He said, so go get a cookie and break it in half and give me a piece. Give Give me half of it. So I watched the kid break the cookie in half, just like he was supposed to do. And when his dad turned his head to have a conversation with somebody, he took a bite of the cookie, of the half of the cookie that he was supposed to give to his dad. And when his dad turned around, he just handed him the one that he had just taken a bite out of. So he took a little bit more than himself than half. Now we, la- we might laugh at that and think, well, that's kind of funny. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. They were dishonest enough that they said, hey, we're going to sell the land. So they sold the land. They broke the cookie in half. But before they got to the apostles' feet, they took a bite out of the proceeds and stuck it where they needed to stick it. And then they laid it all at the apostles' feet and pretended like it was everything. Now here's the deal. We cannot value our own possessions greater than our holiness. We cannot value our own personal reputation greater than our, our holiness. Listen, we, everything we have is founded in Christ and Christ alone. And we have to hold on to that. Listen, Ananias and survivors, they sought the praise of other people. Listen, they became more concerned with their reputation and what others thought of them. They saw what took place with Barnabas and they were like, Wow, I wonder what it's gonna be like when we give our gift to the apostles and what people are gonna say about us. This, this is what was happening. The, the motivation was not that they were gonna help people in need. The motivation was is what they look like when this comes. They were dishonest. They lied about their own act of charity. The text tells us right in verse two, and with his wife's knowledge, they predetermined what they were going to do. So often we lie without considering the damage on ourselves and others, and we demonstrate the reality of our sinful nature as humans. Few of us actually understand how serious lying really is. But the truth is, is that God takes our lies personal. And when we minimize our sin, we will, we will, let me say this again. We will minimize our sin when we minimize who we're sinning against. And what's happening here is, they didn't see God as a holy God. And so they thought it'll be no big deal if we keep a little bit of this back to ourselves. And what they quickly figured out was is that a holy God was very much paying attention. And Ananias and Sapphira were greedy. The, the word kept for themselves is this idea of skimming off the top or embezzling funds. It's the same verb used in Joshua 7. The story of Achan as he kept some of the spoil for himself uh, and he he hid it in his tent. Listen, you know that story. They went into battle. They were told not to take the spoil. He took some, dug a hole in his tent, buried it and covered it up, thought nobody would would know what had happened until Israel went to the next battle and things didn't go well. And then they realized that there was sin in the camp because what happens to dishonesty in the church when we're not honest as individuals with our tithes and offerings, our our appearance of things, when we're not being truthful in the church, what happens is is that the mission of God gets interrupted because attention has to be turned to figure out what's going on and why is this happening. And we need to think about the story of Achan and Ananias and Sapphira and even Judas about how greed was devastating for their life and for the lives of others. Listen, they were filled with evil. The text tells us, in verse 3, and Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The enemy has a real influence in our life. He seeks to destroy us by the love of money, falsehood, and hypocrisy. He tempts to act unwise He tempts us to act unwisely. He tempts us to minimize our sin and not think it's a big deal. And ultimately, his goal is to destroy you and this church. And so when Ananias and Sapphira gave way to the enemy, they grieved the Holy Spirit. Now, some people would say their judgment was too swift. Like it was too severe. Like they literally had no chance to say they were sorry and repent. Listen, Peter isn't the one who dished out the judgment. It was God who did it. Peter just confronted them and God carried out the judgment. And listen, just as John Calvin would say, people who are displeased about God being excessively severe in this situation are too arrogant themselves, meaning this, that we, we are in the business of minimizing our offense because we're minimizing who we're offending. Church, we serve a holy God. He pays attention to our individual lives and he will hold us accountable for the way that we conduct ourselves. Now, this this should move every one of us to cry out and say, God, have mercy on me. It should also make us get on our knees and say, please let me be like a Barnabas and not like an Ananias and Sapphira. God, help me by your grace pursue integrity in the way that I live my life. Because Ananias and Sapphira could have used a healthy fear of God because what happened, if we see at the end of of chapter 5, after he, by the way, they gave Sapphira an opportunity herself to make the right decision and she didn't do it. But at the end of chapter 11, or at the end of verse 11, it says, and great fear came upon the whole church. Here's what happened. They saw what took place with Ananias and Sapphira. And while Ananias and Sapphira could have used a healthy dose of the fear of God, the church saw God act. And I'll just say this very clearly. If we're gathered in this room today and God wanted to handle one of us severely for being dishonest within the church and one of us dropped over dead because of God's judgment here. I promise you this, every single one of us would be on our knees during the invitation asking God, is there any area of my life that is not pleasing to you? It wouldn't take us very long. And we've got to, we've got to use the same response and we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. Why? And we've got to apply the gospel to ourselves. Why? Because the gospel frees us from the addiction to self and stuff. And it helps us and makes us to be honest and generous people. And listen, you might be in this room today. And you might be saying, well, I'm not sure that my sin equates with Ananias. Well, here's what I can tell you about how it might apply to you. We share Ananias' sin not when others think we are more spiritual than we are. Listen, we can't control what other people think about us. But we do share in his sin when we try to make others think we are more spiritual than we are. These are some of the examples that might be included. We create the impression that we are people of prayer when we are not. We make it look like we have it all together when we do not. We promote the idea that we are generous when we are so tight that when we we squeak when we smile. All of us are misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness and this gives us a lot to think about if we dare. And church, I bring this to conclusion by saying this, we need to follow the early church's example and assess ourselves. We need to ask ourselves this morning about our own sinfulness, specifically with spiritual dishonesty. And we need to ask ourselves, are we truthful people? Do we see our sin as an assault on a holy God? And then as we ask those questions, we do, and we let the results of those and we bring those results before the Lord and we ask these questions or we confess those dark places of our life and then we walk in repentance and in response to his holiness. And so we take a look at our own sinfulness this morning. We then take those results before the Lord with confession and repentance, and then we make a covenant with God to say, I want to be more like a Barnabas and less like an Ananias and Sapphira. And don't think to yourself, you're above what Ananias and Sapphira did, because when you do that, you put yourself in a very dangerous place. Let's pray together this morning.